0: Good afternoon. I'm Bruce Hitchner of the Center for Human Values and the Dayton Peace Accords Project. We've done this before, what one might call the political and military projects of democratization. Since 1945, it has been the deeper text of America as a global superpower. First, it was Germany. In Japan, and then following the strange and perhaps anomalous interlude of the Cold War, there was a false start in Somalia, followed by, in quick succession, Bosnia, Kosovo, and Afghanistan. And now Iraq, after a 12-year war of attrition against the pseudo-fascist regime in Baghdad. And the project will not stop with Iraq the process of the democratization of the world stretching from Southeast Europe to East Asia is, for better or worse, ongoing. And so the question must be asked, what lessons have we learned from both the early and now recent experiments of forced democratization? Iraq, it is said, is a much greater undertaking than those in the Balkans and in Afghanistan. Uh, It is said, and on a parallel with the democratization of Germany and Japan, Indeed, the challenges to creating a viable democracy are substantial given the complexity of ethnic and religious identities in Iraq, the history of repression under Saddam Hussein, and the reality of Iraq's troublesome relations with neighboring states. The tensions facing the Iraqis will be a desire to create a democracy that adequately protects the passions, rights, and interests of the various peoples that constitute the country the process of reconstituting Iraq's sovereignty will be highly complex and face many hurdles. How does one create legitimacy for a state of many nations? The eclectic ethnic and religious makeup of Iraq will require that the Iraqi people develop either a sufficiently decentralized unitary state or federal structure that will secure Kurdish participation in the Iraqi state without undermining the functional integrity of the country. The Kurdish-Arab bargain must be accomplished while accounting for the Sunni-Shia split within the Arab community and without neglecting the needs and aspirations of Iraq's minority populations, such as the Turkmen, Chaldeans, and as- Assyrians. Iraq's neighbors must also be assured of its inter- territorial integrity, while others, prevented from actively, while others are prevented actively from undermining its integrity or radicalizing its politics. The task will be complicated by the already substantially divergent constitutions put forward by the Kurdish regional government and the Iraqi exile groups, coupled with the emerging proposals by some of the southern Shia groups. While the umbrella exile groups have proposed constitutions and principles which embrace democracy and call for a federal Iraq with vaguely defined allocations of responsibility, the Kurds have proposed a loose confederation with near-absolute Kurdish authority over historically Kurdish lands and cities currently populated by non-Kurds and with a bimodal central government with an equal distribution of power and authority between the Kurds and Arabs. And some nascent shia political movements are calling for the creation of an Iraq theocracy based on the Iranian model. All these will occur... in the the context of a lack of democratic history in Iraq and the absence of suitable regional models. Civil society and other social institutions have been nearly destroyed by decades of totalitarian rule. There are no useful democratic models in the immediate region other than Turkey, and there is as yet an undefined Islamic factor which may substantially influence the process of democratic transition. The process will certainly take place in a period of considerable confusion and disorder. But even if we accept the problems facing Iraq are different from those encountered previously, it is not sufficiently exceptional exceptional, to be treated as sui generis in the short history of democratization processes. There is much to learn from what has come before. And it was with that in mind that we have organized this panel of specialists Before I introduce our speakers, I would like to take a few moments to offer what I believe to be a few lessons learned from these past democratization processes. First, as we are learning painfully from Kosovo and Bosnia, the rule of law and the legitimacy of the state is a critical first step in successful democratization. Second, the U.S. should stay the course in democratizing Iraq, as there is no UEU to accede to. Third... Remember that this, there is a process to rebuilding Iraq, not just democratizing it, that includes dealing first with emergencies and humanitarian assistance, secondly, building infrastructure and development, and finally, supporting economic development and democratization. Fourth, remember that the Iraqis are part of the solution to the problem, not the problem itself. It is essential to build partnerships with Iraqis throughout the country, not just in Baghdad, on shared solutions to rebuilding and reforming the country. We should encourage NGOs that are independent and focused. Finally, as remains true for every democratic intervention we have undertaken around the world, we can't afford to fail. To that end, Americans must be reminded the Iraq is not a problem owned by one administration Or Americans of a particular political persuasion. The democratization of Iraq is the responsibility of all Americans at this time. There, there is, as I have already said, much to be learned from them, from these past experiences in terms of what worked and what didn't. I now turn to our distinguished panel to discuss those lessons learned. Our first speaker this more, this afternoon is David Large, professor in the history, Department of History at Montana State University. We will address the lessons of post-war Germany. Professor Large has written many books on modern Germany, German history, most notably for our purposes, Germans to the Front, West German Rearmament in the West in the Adenauer era. Our second speaker will be Sheldon Garin of the Department of History here at Princeton. He will examine the case of Japanese democratization. Professor Garin is the author of The State and Labor in Modern Japan and Molding Japanese Minds, The State in Everyday Life. Our third speaker is Alex Grigorev, who's a program officer at the Project on Ethnic Relations, an NGO based here in Princeton that specializes in mediation processes with the political leadership in the states of the former Yugoslavia and Albania. Alex has published articles and op-eds in the Wall Street Journal, the International Herald Tribune, and and the European Press. He will address the lessons learned from the Balkans. And finally, our final speaker is Ambassador Richard Kozlerich, currently director of the Special Initiative on the Muslim World at the United States Institute of Peace. He will speak on the case of Afghanistan. Ambassador Kozlerich served as U.S. ambassador to Bosnia and Herzegovina and Azerbaijan. Well, with that, I turn over the the, uh, podium to uh, Professor Large.
1: Thanks, Bruce. I'm very pleased to be here. Let me uh, begin my remarks with a a quotation, and it goes as as follows. Anyone who seriously believes in democracy knows that it is not a commodity that can be neatly packaged, distributed uh, with food rations, and digested with magical effects. Nor is there, to put it negatively, any wondrous political serum whose injection can immunize the patient against the disease of militarism, unquote. So said General Lucius Clay upon uh, taking up his role as military governor of the American occupation zone in Germany in 1945. The American experience in democratizing its portion of Germany in the post-war era was, I think, to show just how correct Clay had been, to doubt the ease with which a U.S.-style democracy might be transplanted to the defeated Reich. Ultimately, of course, as we all know, West Germany was to emerge as a solid and stable democracy, one of the strongest in the world. But one must ask how much this success was due to, to, uh, due to direct uh, American tutelage and how much derived from native resources and traditions. While one should not discount the American influence here, which was certainly considerable the story would certainly have been much different had there not been a native German heritage, however battered, of democratic ideals and uh, practices upon which the post-war Germans could themselves draw in constructing a pluralistic parliamentary system. Now, some aspects of the American experience as participants in the remaking of post-Hitler Germany might indeed be applicable uh, to the challenges that the so-called coalition faces in post-Saddam Iraq. But I think the cases are so different that we have to be very cautious in trying to draw direct lessons or in citing post-war Germany, or for that matter, Japan, as viable models for the reconstruction of post-Saddam Iraq. I think that to the degree there are lessons here uh, to be extracted from our, our role as, as pro consuls in Germany, uh, these lessons are largely cautionary. Moreover, aside from the obvious differences between the entities targeted for democratization, we must be aware of the huge difference in America's world position between the late 1940s and the present. At the end of World War II, America was at the high point of its political and moral credibility around the world. Now, Washington is arguably at its lowest standing ever, being considered by many people, not just in the Arab region, to to be the world's number one rogue state. The disparity between America's impressive military clout and its moral authority is quite striking. One index of that, of course, is the lack of credibility, one index of that lack of credibility is the pressure within Iraq for the U.S. to get out uh, quickly. Uh, There was no similar pressure for the U.S. uh, to leave uh, Germany after 1945. On the contrary, Germans in the Western zone were desperate uh, to keep U.S. forces there, partly to protect them, of course, against the Soviets. Although some Americans... Uh, in 1945, hoped ultimately uh, to remake Germany in the American image, this was not the initial goal of the military occupation. That mission was to restore order and to denazify the region, an ambition that, at least in the beginning, uh, did not make much of a distinction between the Nazi leadership and the German people as a whole, who were thought to have been so so, so thoroughly corrupted uh, by the Hitler regime um, as to make them almost incapable of building a, a democracy. There was much skepticism on that score uh, in the United States. This was the impulse, this skepticism was uh, the impulse behind the famous Morgenthau plan, which called for the pastoralization of Germany. that is, was turning it into one big agricultural region without any industry. The Morgenthau plan was dropped before the occupation actually began, But the official doctrine for U.S. occupation forces, the so-called JCS 1067, also stressed containment and punishment over reconstruction and re-education. American GIs were admonished not to fraternize with the natives and to treat them as a conquered rather than as a liberated people. It quickly became apparent, however, that this hard line was in fact making it more difficult to maintain order and achieve a modicum of social stability. The American military discovered that it could not effectively perform all the necessary security and administrative functions on its own. It needed assistance uh, from the natives, and, of course, it often turned out that the natives best able to help were precisely the ones who had performed key administrative functions under the Third Reich. In order to facilitate its use of native talent, the American occupation regime abandoned its initial practice of excluding from public employment all Germans who had held responsible posts under the Nazis. The policy quickly became one of excluding and punishing only those, quote-unquote, dangerous Nazis. And in order to ferret those folks out, the Americans devised an elaborate questionnaire system that required zonal residents to describe their behavior under the Nazi regime. Needless to say, this system generated a lot of creative resume reworking on the part of the Germans, a huge po- uh, portion of whom portrayed themselves as stalwart anti Nazis. It was virtually impossible to find anybody who indicated I was a Nazi on the forum, not surprisingly. Uh, it wasn't long before the Americans uh, became frustrated uh, with this whole uh, project of denazification. It was messy, it was difficult. And in June 1946, uh, the Americans began turning the task over to the local uh, German authorities themselves, who, not surprisingly, proved uh, somewhat less than zealous in holding their fellow countrymen to account for past abuses. Of some two million suspects in the American zone, only about one million ever went to trial, and of them only 1,549 were found to have been major offenders. The new West German state uh, that was uh, created in 1949 remained officially committed to denazification, but neither of the two major parties, the Christian Democrats or the Social Democrats, uh, pursued this task with any vigor, realizing, as one authority uh, put it, quote, they would have to fish for their votes from a people whose overwhelming majority some ten years earlier would have voted for Hitler in a free and secret election, unquote. The American High Commission for Germany, which replaced the military occupation in 1949, uh, endorsed this lenient approach in general, Uh, the Americans were much more interested in promoting stability and productivity uh, than in transforming German society. A major factor behind America's abandonment of a thorough purging of German society was the emerging Cold War. Hoping to win over the Western Germans as allies against the Soviet Union and to build up Western Germany as a bulwark against communism, Washington, along with Britain, mandated the development of native-run local and regional governmental institutions, they countenanced the drafting of a new constitution for the western zones, and perhaps most crucially, laid the material foundation for political and social recovery through the Marshall Plan and currency reform. While these measures hastened the formal division of Germany in 1949, they also ensured that in the Federal Republic of Germany, western-style democratic institutions would at least have a decent chance of getting off the ground. I would argue without that material reconstruction, it would have been very difficult indeed. That was absolutely crucial. And yet, and this is a point I'd like to stress, the kind of democracy that ultimately did develop in West Germany proved not to be a clone of the U.S. model, which had been the early hope of some of the American civilian advisors in the military uh, administration, General Clay's wisdom regarding the futility of passing out democracy like MREs notwithstanding, U.S. administrators uh, administrators, uh, tried to promote a transplantation of American-style democracy via new civics textbooks in the schools, information programs in the media, American-approved newspapers and radio stations, cultural exchanges, and a proliferation of America houses across uh, Western Germany. While some uh, Germans enthusiastically embraced this Americanismus uh, in politics as well as in popular culture, uh, many others, especially in the intelligentsia and in the emergent political elite, deeply resented uh, the American tutelage as ham handed and misdirected. They insisted that Germany had democratic traditions of its own on which to draw and that the country's socioeconomic evolution. Mandated a style of democracy cut to German order, cut to the German order, uh, not to the American. Moreover, uh, many Germans saw American political culture as deeply flawed. They pointed to the disenfranchisement of blacks and Indians in some states, the less than democratic electoral college, the inordinate influence of money and special interests, and widespread voter apathy and ignorance. Partly in response to German reservations about the American system, and partly due to an internal American reassessment of how best to promote the growth of viable democratic institutions in a formerly totalitarian land, uh, the US administrators gradually backed away uh, from the direct spoon feeding approach in favor of a more indirect line, handled largely by liaison officers. This new line was justified with reference to a Jeffersonian and frontier populist interpretation of American democratic history which suggested that genuine democracy required leaders and institutions that arose organically from the will of the people. Thus, even before the Federal Republic officially became a nation, Western Germans were allowed to choose their own political leaders and lay down the constitutional guidelines for their new state with only minimal guidance uh, from the occupation powers, including the United States. I'm talking now about the Western zones, of course, not not, uh, East Germany. Uh, Not surprisingly, while some of those new institutions in the West looked familiar to American uh, observers, West Germany purposefully diverged from the American example in significant ways. Because of their own unhappy experience with domineering central executives in the Weimar Republic and the Third Reich, they adopted for a highly decentralized federal system presided over by a prime minister, not a president, who was closely tied to the parliament, much more the British system than our own. In the economic realm, they accepted the basic premise of uh, free enterprise and the market economy, but they tempered these ideals with strong provisions for worker protection, worker influence, so called mitbestimmung, and social welfare. In defining the crucial economic dimensions of their new democratic order, the West Germans clearly wanted to draw distinctions between their own social market system and the, in their eyes, overly predatory and social Darwinist system in the United States. The American project of democratizing Germany also involved, at least in its initial conception, a thorough demilitarization of the country. Germany was to be completely stripped of existing military institutions and banned from ever creating any new ones. But here, too, the changing international situation mandated a hasty reorientation of American policy. Within three years of the end of the war, the United States found itself encouraging, even demanding, a West German military contribution to European security. To Washington's shock and dismay, however, the Germans insisted that they'd had enough of things military. They preferred to have us protect them and to focus on civilian reconstruction. After much negotiation between Bonn and the occupation powers, West Germany did eventually agree to build a new army, the Bundeswehr, and to join NATO, which it did in 1955. But Bonn insisted that as a guarantee against possible relapses into old abuses, their new military must be democratic in character, composed of what they called citizens in uniform. When Bonn's military planners asked the Americans for guidelines in setting up their new democratic army, American officers replied that they could not be of much help. Uh, The U.S. had an army that defended democracy, but not a democratic Army. One officer said he considered a democratic army a contradiction in terms. Apart from the fact that our military had civilian control at the top, uh, there was little emphasis on uh, democracy. When the Germans nonetheless plowed ahead with their quest for democratic military institutions from the bottom up, including unions for the soldiers, uh, American military observers became quite alarmed openly complaining that it was perverse for the Germans to suddenly become reform-minded and demo- democracy besotted at a time when they were finally on the right side, namely the American side. As, general, uh, as one general put it, where's the old Wehrmacht when we need it? <laughs> here, of course, here, of course uh, was another cautionary tale uh, from the American experience as occupiers of post-Hitler Germany. The targets of American re-education could prove rather more democratically inclined than Washington had bargained for. Their very zeal in this department, making them less compliant uh, than America would have liked. We may have talked a great deal about replacing authoritarianism with democracy. Certainly, that was the mantra of the day, as it is today. But democracy had a way of getting out of hand and of bringing results that we hadn't bargained for. Let me conclude with another quotation from the immediate post-war era, this one from General Eisenhower. He said, if the Germans have a stable, prosperous democracy, then we shall have succeeded 50 years down the line. Well, the Germans do have a stable democracy now, 50 years uh, down the line. But we can take uh, that if we can take uh, any credit uh, for this success, that is primarily because... Uh, the Germans themselves uh, were capable of of generating uh, a lot of the capacity for that democratic reconstitution. Also, I would argue that the uh, policy was successful in the long long run only because uh, we agreed to stay in Germany for the long haul and to invest huge resources in the reconstitution of that battered land. Perhaps the major lesson to be gleaned from this experience is that democratization, however defined, Cannot be achieved quickly or on the cheap, which, alas, seems to be the unrealistic and irresponsible vision of America's present proconsuls in defeated Iraq. Thank you.
0: Thank you, David. Our next speaker is Sheldon Garrett.
2: Okay, thank you. Uh, let me begin with a thank you and then an apology. The thank you is to Josh Ober and, and Mike Duran who thought of me for this panel. Um, when you study a place like Japan that actually used to be something um, and then you go through 12 years of, uh, of almost uh, economic stagnation nobody's interested in, I'm, I'm really tickled to, <laughs> to be here and actually say something and people want to know even if it's a negative example. Uh, okay. That almost sounded like the apology, but the apology is that uh, uh, I gave almost the exact same presentation a week ago at a panel sponsored by the Woodrow Wilson School. I see a few familiar faces. Uh, I have to tell you, I didn't change a whole lot uh, because the occupation of Japan hasn't changed that much in the last week. I hope it's still valuable. Uh, well, I, I want to thank the previous speaker, uh, uh, David Large. Uh, I-, I think uh, the-, the German-Japan parallels are, are just wonderful uh, uh, I have done this for the last week, including on a local NPR program with Folker uh, uh We had Charles Mayer uh, last week. So uh, it, it's, it's wonderful because everybody seems to agree on the German case, uh, at least insofar as, as the present Iraq situation is. And it does set up the Japanese case. There are so many similarities in terms of the lessons it provides. Uh, there are a few differences, and, and I'll be speaking about them. So the question is, so what does the occupation of Japan? teach us about uh, or what lessons does it provide about the present occupation of Iraq. Uh, Now, this is more than an academic exercise. I'm sure sure we realize um, over the last several months leading up to the war, uh, several people in the Bush administration prominently mentioned the occupation of Japan and the occupation of Germany as their success stories for why it was going to be possible to occupy well not occupy to liberate and to democratize iraq and, and just to i mean to give you a little background here uh, although the us congress allegedly debated this situation last fall in the war resolution clause i don't believe there is a single question uh, that was voiced by congressmen or senators to administration spokesmen about what would actually happen after the war was over. But about two days after that, the New York Times broke a story in which they talked to administrative sources uh, who told uh, the New York Times uh, that, indeed, the White House was developing a detailed plan to install a U.S. military government in post-war Iraq and that it would be modeled on the occupation of Japan. Uh, and uh, the story in the leaks went on to say that perhaps General Tommy Franks would assume the role of Douglas MacArthur, and that's a direct quote. Uh, and, and, and they weren't talking simply about the movie. Uh, now, uh, President Bush, for his part, in, in late February, uh, gave a talk to the American Enterprise Institute, uh, in which uh, he, too, cited the occupations of Japan and Germany in this case, Uh, As triumphs in which, quote, we did not leave behind occupying armies, we left constitutions and parliaments. Now, I don't want to, I want to be bipartisan here because Diane Feinstein a few uh, just a couple of nights ago after uh, President Bush landed on the aircraft carrier uh in her uh rejoinder I, I, she called it a rejoinder it sounded like the same thing to me uh but uh similarly said it was going to take a long time to occupy Iraq just as it did in Japan and Germany countries that uh similarly had not known democracy uh so well well you can already see that uh, both <laughs> professor large and i might have disagreements with that statement and then uh recently uh just really a couple of weeks ago, the Deputy, uh, deputy uh, Secretary of Defense, Paul Wolfowitz, uh, was on Meet the Press and other programs, and he assured us that democracy in Iraq uh, would inspire the Arab world uh, just as, quote, the power of democracy in Japan has spread across Asia in places that previously had no use for the Japanese. And, and, uh, I mean, as I said last week, I was thinking of bringing a map in and some thumbtacks and having you all locate all these democracies in immediate post-war Asia that had been inspired by the Japanese. I, but, but again, I mean, to be a little bipartisan, uh, 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 Fareed Zakaria in his uh, Newsweek article ac- excerpt uh, also had this same statement about uh, how the power of democracy in Japan had inspired the rest of Asia. So, I mean, clearly people talk to each other in Washington. I don't know if they talk to anyone else, but they come up with, with very interesting types of historical understanding. Well, the good news here is uh, to a historian like myself, we have an administration that, that takes history very seriously. I mean, the bad news is they seem to get it wrong. Um, and, and I, I don't, I don't want to be nitpicking here. I don't want to be schoolmarmish, but I think getting it wrong In this case, uh, it really does have some pretty serious consequences down the road uh, because I think the flawed understanding of the history of the occupations of Japan and Germany have led to some very highly unrealistic uh, visions of what is possible in Iraq. And I'd argue that a rudimentary understanding of of the occupation of Japan or Germany uh, does provide uh, some cautionary warnings about Uh, current grandiose efforts to reform and democratize Iraq. Well, let me start with some of the serious uh, flaws in the administration's historical arguments. Uh, And I'll try and be brief here because I'm sure we'll want to talk about these later. Uh, I think as most of us know by now, uh, the occupation of Japan uh, was not a quick affair. It lasted nearly seven years, uh, even longer than in the German case, from 1945 to 1952. Uh, it was a remarkably comprehensive and serious affair, as it was in Germany, maybe even more so in the Japanese case. Uh, great numbers of policy experts were brought into the uh, occupation uh, the Ameri- they were almost entirely Americans uh, general headquarters under General MacArthur. Uh, what is interesting about this is about three to five thousand people in the headquarters, not the, not the the troops on the ground, but I mean, the specialists who were involved in about 50 different areas of policy reform, uh, from constitutional legal revision uh, to local government uh, to women's rights to labor rights uh, to land reform, a whole series of issues. Uh, Unlike the present situation where I see that local government's been assigned to one consultancy company now uh, for Iraq and education's been uh, assigned to a a group in the research triangle, Uh, this was all done in-house. I mean, these were the old-fashioned days where, first of all, we had this enormous uh, military force that really included an enormous amount of civilian talent. I mean, this was the end of World War II. So a lot of people were already in uniform, and those who weren't in uniform, uh, various people from bankers to labor experts, et cetera, were recruited uh, in this effort and sent to Tokyo. Now, another point I want to make about the seriousness of this affair is that democracy in 1945 was in some ways envisioned in different ways than it is today. And uh, I mean, certainly one of, one of the prime uh, recipes for democratizing Japan was to create various types of social and economic equality or more equality uh, through things like land reform in the countryside, but particularly uh, through the encouragement of a vibrant labor union movement. And uh, this was one of the first efforts on the part of the United States was to really foster this labor movement. And I, you know, I think to myself, can you quite imagine the Bush administration going in as one of the first measures and encouraging labor unions in Iraq? Well, I mean, the definition of democracy itself has changed in many ways. Well, um, OK, so the first point is this is a comprehensive, long term patient occupation. Uh, The second difference I'd like to to make is one I I won't spend a lot of time on because I I guess you talked about this this morning. But in terms of the military manpower that was used by uh, the U.S. occupation of Japan, it's it's enormous. Uh, It was 600,000 originally, and that included a small contingent of British Commonwealth forces. Uh, it, It scaled back fairly quickly. Then a couple of years, down to about 120,000 a year, uh, this is military forces, uh, largely United States. Now, uh, the point here is, and I think you did talk about this this morning, so I, I won't spend a lot of time on it, uh, I mean, it, you, the U.S. felt that it took a lot of, uh, it took significant manpower to occupy Japan. Japan, of course, is about three times the population of Iraq today, but there are some things we might want to consider. Um, And I don't know if you mentioned this this morning, but incredibly enough, in the nearly seven years of occupation, not a single shot was fired on U.S. occupying forces. There were no terrorist acts. Nobody lobbed grenades. uh, There weren't the sort of things that we've already seen in the first few weeks, Uh, and just, and, and then the other thing is obvious. Uh, there were no significant uh, ethnic or religious uh, lines of conflict in Japan, uh, or, or really in Germany for that matter. So the point here is the U.S. committed uh, sizable military forces, um, despite the fact that, unlike the Iraq situation, nobody was actually shooting at them, uh, and that they didn't have to step into you know, what is, is, is some pretty serious internecine warfare. Uh, so that's, that's uh, another point. Now, a third point to be made, uh, and this I think people do not uh, totally appreciate in the Japanese case, but that the U.S. occupation in Japan, unlike uh, its zone in Germany and the other zones in Germany, the U.S. occupation in Japan governed directly through the Japanese government and its civil administration. Okay, so there is no, nothing equivalent to the Nazi regime in Japan. There's nothing equivalent to the Nazi party. Uh, the regime holds in Japan. Uh, the Japanese bureaucracy, whether it's public health or particularly police or whatever, local government functions, all of that remains intact. Uh, now, this is a conscious decision on the part of the United States, Uh, just as it was a conscious decision on the part of the United States in the German case, I think, to have a more direct military occupation. But in the case of Japan, uh, in the days right before U.S. forces actually uh, land on Japanese soil in in August 1945, the decision was made to, quote, unquote, um, exercise authority through Japanese governmental machinery and agencies, including the emperor. That's the initial post-surrender policy. Uh, and uh, the preface to that was that this would allow uh, the U.S. to attain its objectives, quote, with a minimum commitment of its forces and resources. Now, one of the differences is uh, there were many fewer Japanese speakers in the U.S. occupying forces. Uh, it was just felt that it would be next impossible. Uh, for the U.S. to really directly rule in any sort of way. But I say this because we have to understand that General MacArthur, a very authoritative figure, He had his pipe in his hand, real charismatic guy, but he is not running Japan directly. When he gives a directive, it goes to the Japanese government, which administers it. The other point I want to make is that the civilian administration, as I said, remains intact. There is not a date. There is not an hour when there was a power vacuum. Okay. The, the Japanese government, its police forces are there. Uh, now, it doesn't mean there's no disorder in Japan. There is a black market, big black market. Uh, there are fistfights. There's a few murders. A few people get stabbed. There's some organized crime. But... Uh, there's not the sort of looting and total breakdown of, of, uh, of a civil society that, that we have seen in Iraq. The police stayed on the job. The ministries, Ministry of Education, Bank of Japan, all of the other ministries, maintained continuity while introducing U.S. reforms. Now, a fourth point and a fourth difference is, and this, this one's really very relevant to your conference today, and that reg- uh, that's with regard to democratization. In contrast to Iraq... This is probably obvious by this point of the day, but uh, pre-war Japan had a long history of democratization. Uh, even if President Bush didn't know it, even if, uh, Senator Feinstein didn't know it, in fact, even if most, well, a lot of people actually, some of my colleagues in other departments in this university, I won't name, they didn't know it, <laughs> but it, it's, it's obvious to me. Uh, Japan had a constitution, a pretty impressive European-style constitution, 1889, 1890, Japan established the first genuine parliament in, in, in Asia or Africa. There were opposition parties from 1890 on, in the 1920s. Parties actually ran the government. I mean, they provided the prime ministers. They organized the the parliaments. As in Germany, uh, this was a fragile democratization. In the 1930s, uh, it was put down. Uh, Although, unlike Germany, the parliament actually does continue through and never ceases to function for a day in Japan. And this was understood to, uh, I think, our credit as a nation by U.S. occupying authorities uh, who, before they got to Japan in the famous Potsdam Declaration of July 1945, uh, called in the Japanese case for the removal, quote, of all obstacles to the revival and strengthening of democratic tendencies among the Japanese people. So to remove obstacles to the revival of de- democratic tendencies. So they understood that there had been a significant democratization before that they could build on. And this leads to a related point which was in pre-war Japan, although this is, again, seldom acknowledged, uh, certainly compared to places like Iraq, Japan had a pretty vibrant civil society. I mean, it not only had political parties, but it had a huge mass press, mass culture. Uh, it had women's suffrage groups. It had actually instituted universal manhood suffrage in 1925. It had labor organizations. It had tenant farmer organizations. Most of these groups did not actually go underground during the war. In fact, they were co-opted. They collaborated with the authoritarian regime. But in 1945, in the two weeks before there's a surrender August 15th, or an, sorry, an announcement of surrender on August 15th, 1945, and then in early September U.S. forces actually get there, in that two-week interlude, great numbers of groups within Japanese civil society reorganized and positioned themselves to go straight to the U.S. occupying forces the minute they landed. Women's groups said, we want women's suffrage. Socialist Party reconstituted itself. Labor unions reconstituted themselves. All of these things clearly made the job of the U.S. occupation a whole lot easier than if groups like this did not exist. Moreover, and I echo what David Large just said, uh, the fact that there were all these groups in civil society who basically knew what a functioning democracy might look like was very important to shaping uh, the U.S., uh, efforts to democratize Japan because when U.S. authorities got there, at first they had very American-centered ideas just as, as Professor has said on how to shape Japanese democracy. Well, they found that Japanese already had a parliament, a British-style parliament. They, w- they didn't change that. They had many British and German and European features. Moreover, the U.S. authorities met with various Japanese socialists who told them about a lot of the social rights features of the Weimar co- German Constitution and those social rights features like right to livelihood right to welfare, right to work, were inserted in the post-war Japanese constitution. Well, I'm going to bring this to a close. Um, There are other points we could have talked about, uh, but uh, let me be clear here. I don't think the occupation of Iraq is mission impossible. I think it's mission highly improbable. Uh, (laughs) uh, To me, it seems that, that Iraq lacks nearly all of the preconditions that made reform possible in Japan, But I think there's an even greater problem, which I think has been alluded to, and I I suspect will be alluded to again, and that has to do with our side, with the United States and how the U.S. has changed since 1945. I think the greater problem may not be our capacity to reform or democratize Iraq, but it's the will of Americans and American leadership to do what needs to be done. Uh, I think we're a far different country than we were in 1945. I think we lack the imagination the sober planning and the staying power to reconstruct another society and actually do it right. Maybe we'll leave Iraq a more democratic and pluralist society than we found it, but the historian in me has some serious doubts.
0: I think uh, we've obviously had very, very useful comments from historians who point up the importance of getting the history right before we start taking the lessons from it. Um, We're now going to turn to the discussions by two individuals working actively in ongoing efforts at uh, democratization. First, Alex Greenberg.
3: Well, it's difficult to have exactly for this reason a successful comparison between Germany, Japan, or Kosovo and Bosnia, simply because of the amount of time that passed after the war. And I would argue that in the case of Kosovo, the war is not over yet because we don't know what Kosovo is, which country it belongs to, or whether it's a country of its own. Uh, but I will try to do my best to give you some first observations. And I will not concentrate on, on the events of the, of the war because we all lived through them and still living through these things. There are a few similarities between Iraq and the Balkans, and I want to stress the word few. Uh, and the most critical similarity is the multi-ethnicity of both places. And um, I want to stress that democracy is possible in multi-ethnic societies. And not only in countries like Belgium and Finland, it is possible in uh, Romania and Bulgaria, and it's working already in those countries. Uh, It is also difficult to uh, provide relevant lessons from the Balkans for Iraq because the two places are so very different. And that difference does not only come from uh, the differences in sizes of the territory population. The first difference, to my mind, is... um, F- uh, comes from the very reasons w- uh, for which we went into the Balkans and the reasons for which we went into Iraq. We went, uh, our mission in Bosnian Kosovo was to stop the civil and uh, ethnic wars, to stop the slaughter of people. In Iraq, our goal was different. We didn't go into Serbia to uh, overthrow Slobodan Milosevic. Uh, even though we surely hope to weaken uh, the regime, which would have been very happy if it collapsed earlier than it did. The second thing, uh, we also went into these places as a part of very different international groupings. In Bosnia and Kosovo, we went at the decision of the United Nations, and the internationals in both places included the French, the Russians, the Germans. Um, In Kosovo, for example, a Frenchman, Bernard Kushner, was the head of the first uh, United Nations administration, and currently it's it's run by Michael Steiner, a German. Uh, 50 nations currently are represented within uh, the United Nations administration in Kosovo, and as far as I know, the coalition of Willen does not include France, Germany, Russia, those places. The uh, third difference, and I think it's also a crucial one, is that despite differences between the Americans and the Albanians or the Americans and the Bosniaks, by the way, both well, Bosniaks, Muslims, and Albanians, predominantly Muslim, or Americans and the Serbs, Americans and Croats, the people of the Balkans see themselves belonging to the same civilization as the Americans. They see belonging themselves uh, into Europe and certainly to the same civilization of Europe and the United States. And all of them have one uh, political goal, and that is integration into the transatlantic structures, NATO, or European structures, European Union. and. Uh, Uh, the civilizational gap uh, in Iraq is much deeper. The Albanians for example love the Americans. You will go into any office of an Albanian politician today, doesn't matter where it is in Kosovo, in Montenegro, in Albania, in Macedonia you will see an American flag uh, displayed very prominently, permanently and prominently next to the Albanian flag. And there were certainly no terrorist uh, attacks, uh, domestic terrorist attacks in Bosnia or in Kosovo against the Americans or any western soldiers. Yesterday, for example, Secretary Powell was in Tehran, and he received the highest uh, decoration of the state of Albania. Uh, And the last one, our goals in respective places are somewhat different, too. In Iraq, we do not need to build a new nation in a sense that we don't need to define the borders of that nation. In Bosnia, we were doing exactly that. We were building a new nation. And... uh, Uh, even though the nation existed a couple of years before we came there, but we certainly had to define what that nation was. In Kosovo, we don't know yet what we're building, frankly, whether we're building a new nation or we're building an autonomy. We're definitely building building something with with the local self-government. If one looks at the picture of the Balkans after the conflicts uh, are over, uh, I see a picture of both success and failure, And I think, to my mind, there is more reason for uh, pessimism than even cautious optimism about whether we will succeed in our noble goals in those places. On one hand, of course, and this is a great success, the slaughter has been stopped in both Bosnia and Kosovo. And uh, in both places, we have governments elected by the people who live in those places. Uh, On the other hand, and the security, of course, is much, it cannot be compared to what it was uh, right after, after the conflict. But on the other hand, after the decade of involvement, tens of thousands of peacekeeping troops, uh, involvement of thousands of civilian experts, United Nations, OSCE, European Union, the World Bank, the IMF, you name every agency you know, uh, the expenditures that some put uh, around $100 billion, uh, the job uh, is far from being done. If you look at the map, I also didn't bring a map. If you look at the map of the Balkans today, you will see Croatia after a conflict, many Serbs gone and probably never to be returned. In Bosnia, you see a nominally independent country, but an international protectorate run by the office of the high representative uh, of the international community, which creates a very strong uh, culture of dependency, on many important uh, decisions that have to be made. My favorite story is the story of the flag of Bosnia. Uh, If you would ever look at the flags displayed in front of the United Nations, you will see that one of the European flags does not really look like European flags should look like. Well, it was not designed by, it was designed by European, but not by the people in that country. The high representative asked the uh, politicians in Bosnia to design to agree on a new flag. It took them a long time. To agree to disagree. Then he gave him another deadline, and then finally, he designed the flag himself. And I guess he was not the greatest uh, <laughs> designer of flags. Uh, the colors, you're right. <laughs> uh, Bosnians actually trust more the internationals, even now, 80 years after the conflict, more than they trust their own government. Uh, and as Michael Doran said this morning, there is no sense of common identity. In Bosnia, you were talking about some other places, but uh, there is no sense of common identity in, in Bosnia. For example, there is, still, there is still no United Army of the Republic of Bosnia and Herzegovina, and certainly we cannot speak of a stable multi-ethnic or multicultural democracy. The ideas to divide Bosnia are still in place within the country or with the neighbors that border Bosnia. In Kosovo, nominally uh, part of the state of Serbia and Montenegro. Uh, but is run as a protectorate by the United Nations mission in Kosovo. Uh, Kosovo is a very far also from being a stable multi-ethnic democracy up to the point that... Um Many on both sides, Serbs and Albanians, politicians, that is, speak of separation and even possible division of Kosovo as uh, a final solution for the status of the province. The Serb areas within Kosovo north of Mitrovica and some enclaves function as they do not belong to Kosovo but belong to the state of Serbia proper. Macedonia, you have an independent country after a small conflict with the presence of peacekeepers or monitors run by the European Union. Uh, Croatia and Macedonia, f- minor cases uh, with a lesser involvement on the international community. So this is why I will try to make some points about um, Kosovo and Bosnia, especially Kosovo, because presumably we have learned from uh, in- from Bosnia and Kosovo. Maybe we haven't. Uh, I was thinking a lot about what successfully can we learn from so such different case, the Balkan case for for Iraq, and it seems that the major lesson is that there are no quick and inexpensive fixes that we are involved in a very laborious effort, and if we are there in a serious uh, manner, we are there for a long time, longer than the life of uh, a U.S. administration. It has been almost eight years in Bosnia and four years now in Kosovo. The expenditures are very high, and we could never avoid, if we are serious, the issues of nation-building, democracy-building. Democracy democracy is not intuitive, even in the places where uh, democracy was there before. It's a slow learning process, and we cannot even avoid running police and basic services at the very beginning. The experience of Bosnia and Kosovo show that we should be prepared to be engaged at the several points at the same time. And this has to have to be a problem currently in Washington. For example, when you meet with people responsible for the Balkans, Uh, at the National Security Council, they will complain to you that nobody from the senior officials want to talk to them about the Balkans. The only word is Iraq. And the senior director for the Balkans at the National Security Council, she just says exactly that. I go upstairs and nobody wants to talk to me. Bosnia and Kosovo uh, are livable today, but for some reason, people prefer to leave those places. <laughs> <laughs> for some reason, they prefer to go to Western Europe or the United States. And I would argue that the main reason is not just economics. I would argue that the main reason is the lack of rule of law in those places. Uh, by the way, that a- applies to every single country in the Balkans, with the exception of Greece, even though Greeks will say that not a Balkan country, they're a Western European country. <laughs> While building democracy and nation-building in the Balkans, we probably, to my mind, started in the wrong place. Uh, someone has introduced the wrong script, which was closely followed in both places. Uh, someone somewhere had an idea that the elections uh, is the key to democracy and or the barometer of democracy, And the main goal of the international community, besides uh, introducing security in both places, was as soon as possible to organize uh, new democratic uh, free elections. Well, we had certainly enough rounds of elections in Bosnia, and we still do not have a democratic state there. Kosovo already had one round of local preparing for a second one later this year, and one round of national elections. I still don't see a democracy. Instead of elections, we should have concentrated on fighting the organized crime and corruption. And we have democratically elected governments in both places, but they do not control the territory. The countries are controlled very successfully by regional mafias, uh, which uh, has jeopardized the quality of life and scared any serious foreign investment. Uh, we should have established a rule of law in the full extent of the word first, and then move towards the elections. Everything depends on the rule of law, functioning of the economy, free and fair political system, the development of the civic society, public confidence in police and courts, you name it. The lack of rule of law and inability of the government to create it has backfired, I would argue, in the recent elections in Bosnia when we got nationalist parties winning the election. Uh, By tackling the issue of crime, we could have also done a very important thing, and that is to help the moderates, the political moderates within those uh, local political groupings. This is true for every single place in the Balkans, for Bosnia, for Kosovo, or for Macedonia. We would have supported people who are now, we're trying to support, but they do not have ability, they don't have instruments to do, to govern. For example, the Speaker of the Parliament in Kosovo, Dazi, the Prime Minister Rajepi there, or the new Prime Minister Macedonia, Cervankovsky, and the Albanian party there. Uh, we sh- because they, sh- they should have showed to their people that life becomes better when peace comes, and when moderates win over the nationalists. And in many cases, they were not possible, or they were not able to do that. Uh, both in Bosnia and Kosovo, K4 or S4 in Bosnia should have moved right away, not only against the war criminals, which they did, and I uh, think th- they, should be, th- they should be noted, but also after uh, real criminals, simple criminals, the organized crime. And the first commander of K4, when asked why he's not doing this, he said, we're not a police, we are a military force. And this was a perfect opportunity, and I want to straight the stress that word, a perfect opportunity, which we lost. Uh, key institutions such as police, courts, and penal uh, facilities have not been operating for several months after the war. And I would argue that in places uh, like Kosovo, they're not functioning uh, yet. The police is, but the courts and penal system are nowhere to be found. The corruption in Bosnia has reached astronomical proportions. Uh, You heard about the recent case of uh, indictment of former Bosnian ambassador to the United Nations. huge amount of money is is at stake there. Uh, Another question also. We didn't move right away towards de- uh, disarmament of former guerrilla forces, and that was very important. By not doing that successfully in Kosovo, I would argue we made the events in South Serbia in the Prasho Valley and the uh, short war in Macedonia possible because of the spillover from uh, Kosovo. The second important lesson from both places, that very often that the internationals that were put in charge in Bosnia and Kosovo lacked previous experience in doing what they were doing, or they lacked even skills, or were not not able to deal with the situation under post-conflict circumstances, they were chosen to represent a family of nations, of United Nations, rather than a family of skills. Uh, We have uh, learned also that we have to deal with the issue of war criminals in Bosnia and in Kosovo. We have to implement justice. However, in Kosovo and Macedonia, we also learned that we have to deal with all legitimate local actors, even though that sometimes dealing with these actors might not be pleasant. And what I mean uh, by saying this is the former KLA, Kosovo Liberation Army, or National Liberation Army Macedonia guerrilla leaders. Many people will call them thugs or terrorists, but they are real political forces, and uh, they represent uh, the societies where they came from. And for Kosovo, for example, we also had to recognize very late a big divide between urban and rural politicians. First, we were relying on politicians that were educated at the universities of Pristina and Belgrade. But at some point, we had to rely on politicians who never had any university degrees. Uh, let me read something that uh, I got by email uh, last Friday, last week. Uh, This is a statement from the speaker of the current parliament in Kosovo, Nejad Datsi. This is what he said. Uh, last week. I think that UNMIC, the administration of the United Nations and Kosovo, has exhausted all capacities and is no longer needed or has capacity to push forward the process of democratization and economy in Kosovo. For three years, a small country like Kosovo has gathered in its budget one million euros per year, and we don't have pensions. Our salaries are extremely low and frustrating. My salary is lower than that of a cleaning lady in Mr. Steiner's office. UNMIC has been sending false information to New York for over a year and a half. The reason is that some UNMIC departments would like to stay here for another century. Why should they leave Kosovo? Their salaries are higher here than their home countries, and they are not employable there. <laughs> and here we have beautiful women and maybe the best restaurants in the region. LAUGHTER Datsy said that he requires professionalism from Western countries and not administrators and politicians from 19th century or bureaucrats from the 20th century. We no longer need this administration. We need Unmik to remain here as a group of uh, experts, several hundred of them, which will help us uh, with their advice, especially in the field of economy. Well, maybe this is what David Large said, this is democracy getting out of hand, uh, <laughs> free to uh, display its frustration. Well, this frustration is increasing in Kosovo, and this mostly comes from our reluctancy to move toward resolving the issue, and that is the issue of the final status of Kosovo. We're still reluctant to do that, even though, uh, we know and understand that lack of resolving this issue will hamper any progress in Kosovo or in the neighboring uh, places, neighboring countries. The population is frustrated. Four years certainly was enough for them to deal with unresolved status. And, frankly, I don't want to sound pro-Albanian here, and my Serbian friends know I'm not, but, frankly, how long can we... Uh, uh, ignore the will of 90% of the population of that place? And this is a very big and serious question. And this came because we uh, there seems to be a lack of an exit strategy from the international community, and uh, more so in Kosovo than in Bosnia, but I would argue in both places, but more so, again, in Kosovo than in Bosnia. We do not have an exit strategy. Uh, I don't know if I sounded negative or positive about the experience, but some more positive lessons uh, to finish up. Uh, there was a very uh, positive partnership between the uh, civil administration in Bosnia and in Kosovo and the military forces, the S-4 and K-4. K-4, for example, was working on security, and UNMIC was concentrating on running the place. Uh, first, there were some mistakes and lack of coordination, but now uh, the crime rate is down, uh, Significantly, uh, as opposed to the, the first months, and things uh, have picked up again. And it's all due to very good coordination between the, 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 two, the, 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 the two bodies. And the uh, second thing also, which worked very well in Kosovo, I don't know whether it will work in Iraq or not because uh, there is a different coalition of willing, but in Kosovo we divided responsibilities. UNMIC was divided into four pillars. The humanitarian assistance was run by UNHCR. The civic administration was run by the uh, United Nations. The institution building was run by the OSCE. And the uh, reconstruction was run by the European Union. And that helped in terms of money and coordination. So it shows that we are learning, but it's a very slow, slow process.
0: Alex has illustrated well the problems of, of democratization in much smaller states uh, than Iraq uh, thank you very much and our final speaker is Ambassador Richard Koslerich he will speak on Afghanistan thanks a lot
4: Bruce uh, I I'm envious of the historians here, because uh, what I've had to live through in my professional life as a diplomat, I'd much rather would have confronted the situations you described at the end of <laughs> World War II. Uh, we don't get to choose the uh, the countries that we, in a sense, inherit in these post-conflict situations. And recently, we've drawn a pretty short hand, I'm afraid. And So we've heard about the Balkans, and uh, as we talked about Iraq earlier, and I, I may put Afghanistan into that category as well before I'm done with this. Um, Also, if you'll forgive me as I go along, I'm going to do a few commercial breaks for the U.S. Institute of Peace, which has been doing some excellent work both in Afghanistan and Iraq uh, relating to uh, post-conflict activities. And there there are a couple of uh, publications that I will draw your attention to as I go along. But before I begin... Um, let me go back to my my real practitioner past as a U.S. diplomat, and you know I found myself having served mostly in non-democratic countries, asking me, asking myself, why democracy matters? Why should we care? Um, you know, for me, uh, democracy is an open, transparent political system that has a degree of popular legitimacy, and that in some respects there's a relationship between that political system and the the leadership of the nation-state. But if I looked at it. Strictly from the point of view of U.S. interests, let's set aside the interests of the people of, of Afghanistan, uh, Japan, Germany, and, and the Balkans. Um, why should we uh, We, as a government care? It, it, and I think the reason is that increasingly, or maybe not increasingly, we've always looked at stability as being important in countries for achieving U.S. US interests. The flaw in that has been that stability has either been associated with a particular political party regime or, most perniciously, with a particular individual. Uh, And I think if there's one lesson that we've learned, particularly in recent history, is that long-term stability uh, requires a stable social and political system to to underpin it. Uh, There must be popular legitimacy and institutional support, rule of law, security, and elections that really do reflect political will. So whatever one may ascribe as ideological reasons for this administration, in particular supporting democratic trends, I think there is a national objective uh, that uh, that puts democracy very much at the, the forefront of what we want uh, as a nation abroad. Um, when we talk about democracy in Afghanistan and our – our work uh, at the institute has involved a lot of uh, efforts in the rule of law area. Uh, we basically see see two two areas of or two arguments, I guess, that have been posed regarding the applicability of democracy. One, um, Marina Ottaway and Anatole Levin of uh, Carnegie uh, have have argued that basically it's impossible to impose democracy uh, in modern democratic state structures in in uh, Afghanistan. Um, there are ethnic and regional divisions that make this po- impossible. Uh, their bottom line um, in this argument is accept ordered anarchy in Afghanistan. Uh, be satisfied with minimal conditions of medieval civilization. Uh, that is, avoid major armed conflict, uh, establish security of trade routes, and uh, the neutrality and safety of the capital. Um, in essence, uh, and, and Anatole is particularly uh, eloquent on this, the history of Afghanistan is not of a country but of a group of tribes and competing interests uh, that uh, have never and therefore, by definition, will never be capable of democratic uh, 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 structures in, in our lifetime. The counterpart to that, to that argument is one that uh, Thomas uh, Amelia at uh, Georgetown uh, has written about, And he's done a lot of research uh, through focus groups in Afghanistan. Um, And he says, look, uh, Afghans want elected government. Uh, They want governments that's responsible to the people's interests. They believe in equality under the law for all Afghans. And most important, they want their government officials to be held accountable. And interestingly, they really don't see any incompatibility between Islam and democracy. So the question is, who's right? Right. and I guess the answer to that question hinges on one very important element that is still to be present in the Afghan situation and comes back to haunt us, I think, in Iraq as well, and that is uh, the presence or absence of, of security for the people and how they view their, their political future depends very much on how they, they, they see their own personal and national security case of Afghanistan is it going to be the international community or the Afghans themselves who, who provide it? But whoever provides it, it has to be um, a prerequisite. Peace and order must be a prerequisite for basically answering the, 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 the debate over the al- applicability of democracy in, in Afghanistan. If you look at, uh, at, at Afghan, uh, the Afghan challenge as compared to say the Bosnian one, uh, you've got a country that's 12 times the size of Bosnia, 26 million people versus 3 million people in in Bosnia. Uh, you have a difficult terrain, ethnically, tribally, and religiously segmented society in Afghanistan. And most critical, you've got warlords who are dominating uh, the political structure there who have no reason to give up that uh, position of power. Um, so uh, what your I think what you're seeing at at this stage uh, in in the Afghan equation is that the the basic question of of security for Afghanistan still remains to be answered, and until it is, um, it's going to be hard to to go much beyond that. Um, One point I'd like to make about Afghanistan, which does have a lot of similarities here with Iraq as well as, as the Balkans, is that um, you cannot look at developments inside Afghanistan in isolation from the regional framework that it's, that it's in. Um, as we found in the Balkans, bad neighbors make bad security situations and bad political developments. Um, one of the horrors of Dayton uh, Peace Accords, as I mentioned earlier, is that we depended on Franjo Tujman and uh, Slobo Milosevic to guarantee the territorial integrity of Bosnia-Herzegovina and its democratic development. Um, fairly weak reads to rely on. Uh, but if you look at Afghanistan with a neighborhood that has, uh, through through centuries, if not longer of history, been interested in in involving uh, themselves in, in what goes on in Afghanistan, whether it's Iran, Pakistan, uh, India, Russia, uh, this still goes on today. And so whatever we may wish for and, indeed, whatever we may accomplish by working with the uh, with the Afghans, we have to take into consideration that there are going to be outside actors, some of whom are bad, um, doing things that we don't, that we don't like. Uh, the, the key factor here is for democratic development, um, beyond security, uh, the role of the international community. Um, and I think the, the point this morning that was made about the need to do something uh, even if it's wrong, but do it with a sense of commitment, very much applies in, in the Afghan situation. Um, let me talk a little bit about the, the difference between the Balkans and Afghanistan. I'll pick up, Alex, on a couple of points that you made, but I think it's important uh, to recognize that the fact that we went into Afghanistan without U.N. sanction has colored a lot of things that we've done since then. We went in as a combatant, not as a peacekeeper, and that has made relationships with the international community, uh, indeed with uh, non-government organizations, uh, very, very problematic. Uh, because we were seen not as sort of keeping the peace between contending parties, but being part of the, uh, the contending parties. Um, the second thing that made it very, very different was that Afghanistan, we lacked a clear political military plan, an exit strategy of what we were going to do. Understandable reaction to 9-11, immediate military action, the idea was to go in, clear out Al-Qaeda and Taliban, and dot, dot, dot. Didn't get that far before we had to, had to uh, go into action. Um, There was also the late recognition that there was a role for nation building. Um, You will recall that uh, this particular administration didn't like to use those two words together. Um, they thought that was a heritage of the Clinton administration, that they were not going to get involved in it. Wonder of wonders, six months into the Afghan experience, and they recognized that if you didn't build up in Afghanistan, that you were going to have Taliban, if not al-Qaeda, right back in your lap in very short order. So uh, the, the late recognition of the role of nation building was a real uh, real hindrance. And, and then finally, there was the need for in the conduct of the combat operation phase of our involvement in Afghanistan to have local allies to prosecute the war. Those were not necessarily the allies that you would want to build the nation of Afghanistan. And so we ended up inheriting the legacy of tactical military requirements uh, in an an environment that was really not necessarily looking for that kind of sterling leadership. let me point out some similarities, too, because I don't want to make this too too different. Uh, the argument of what kind of Afghanistan do you want, a strong central government or some sort of federal system, same arguments you faced in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Again, the answer is still remaining to be determined, I think, on that. Uh, the second similarity was that, that we recognized fairly early on that there was a security gap in terms of the The presence that we brought to bear in in Afghanistan. We had combat operators on the ground. We did not have people to deal with police, judicial system, rule of law, precisely the problem that we faced in Iraq as well. I'm mystified as to why we can't get the lesson here. Um, There's a reason why the, the, uh, the antiquities were looted in, in Baghdad and why a lot of this happened, because we, w- we were there to fight a war with combat forces without anything to deal with what essentially was a public security function. And Americans alone aren't very good at that, because we don't have gendarmerie or caribinary forces like some, some others do. So that security gap is really, really critical. Um, Afghanistan also had a a bit of a tension between the role of civilian and military role in providing humanitarian assistance. That has only been accented by the debate we talked about regarding Iraq. Um, And uh, the the similar issue, too, on rule of law and the need to move against criminals in the case of Afghanistan, uh, the uh, illegal trade uh, both in goods as well as narcotics has been a major problem in underpinning or under, undercutting our our efforts to build a strong central government. And the last similar issue I want to want to mention is is that, as in the Balkans, um, where we really ignored this, uh, the problem of reconstitution of the educational system is a major challenge. It's not just about history; it's about language. It's about how you deal with people of different ethnic groups. Uh, and that, that has got to be, a, you know, a key similarity here. Um, in Afghanistan today, we have the Karzai government in a, in a weak position. Uh, there is no sense of how do you preserve a long-term security environment. The, um, this uh, ISAF, International Security Assistance Force, has not gone beyond Kabul yet and is unlikely to. Um, people are losing interest already in providing forces to staff that up. Um, the u.s military presence is increasingly in an over horizon mode. Uh, there are very, very small numbers of, of u.S forces there, um, and the uh, provincial reco- reconstruction teams that have been deployed are are few and far between. Uh, and the Afghan army itself is still still in formation. Uh, the other challenges, as I mentioned, was uh, the regional powers uh, continue to support factions within Afghanistan that make it difficult to to build a, a, a strong and, and united, if not democratic, Afghanistan. And ultimately, it's the problem of sustained U.S. interest. Um, this administration has made very clear that it wants uh, people to understand we have not lost interest in Afghanistan, even though Iraq is going on, yet uh, Zal Khalazad, who was the chief uh, point person on Afghanistan, now has this responsibility for Iraq. Zal is a talented guy, but he's not that talented uh, to be able to do both. And what suffers is Afghanistan. Uh, So I I really I I worry about that. Now, let me make a last point, which has perhaps little to do with Afghanistan, uh, perhaps some to do with Iraq. But it really is about David Large's point about getting more in democracy than we bargained for. What I wonder about in all of these situations, particularly in in the Muslim world that we've been discussing, is can we live with the consequences of democracy? We say that's what we want. We want people to make their own decisions. Um, I know the argument that uh, national elections have been held too soon in in the Balkans uh, and therefore ratified extremist and nationalist views may be true. Um, maybe we should have had local elections first to sort of set the ground. But it may be, however, at any level, that these elections fairly reflect the views of the people of those countries. Um, Rumsfeld made a comment, and I'm paraphrasing here, that no way can we have an Islamic government, even if it's democratic ele- democratically elected in Iraq. Um, that really goes to the heart of the question of, you know, what are we committed to and to the question of is there an incompatibility between Islam and democracy, something we may ser- save for another session. Um, but I, I come away, based on my experience in Afghanistan uh, or in, in, uh, in Azerbaijan, excuse me, and, and reflecting a bit on what goes on in, in Afghanistan, that suppressed Islamic political forces. In essence, if we follow through on, on the no way comment, Uh, end up creating political martyrs uh, and give uh, the suppressed forces the moral high ground. Algeria, to me, is the perfect example. Um, I'm not sure that had the elected government uh, or the elected party, anyway, in in Algeria, the Islamic party, been allowed to to take the reins of government, that the situation would be any worse today than it is uh, with the civil war that we've seen and the, the, the carnage that that's wrought. Um, Iran, though obviously the Islamicists there uh, did not uh, come to power through democratic accession, still represent, I think, an example of, of the people deciding that Islamic political parties are really no better than any other political party in delivering the goods. And that, hopefully, is what you want people to make judgments on, on their political future. The same thing may, may have in, it may happen in Turkey as well. Um, But I think we really really have to, in the end, in all of these cases, if we are committed to democracy, ask ourselves, are we prepared to let democratic forces take hold, the cards fall where they may, and have trust that ultimately if a government fails, it's going to fail because it doesn't deliver what the people put it there to deliver.
0: Thank you. I think these were four very stimulating uh, discussions, and I'd like to be, open the floor right away to questions. Yes. I have a question for Ambassador uh, Could you um, discuss what uh, lessons, if any, you think uh, the
5: administration learned in Afghanistan that's applying to Iraq, or uh, just any in, in sorts of uh, uh, crossings
4: or linkages that you see there? Well, I, I think they've, they've uh, the lesson they learned in Afghanistan was uh, if we can act unilaterally uh, and carry out the mission with largely military forces uh, without encumbering ourselves with the United Nations or necessarily even civilian sides of the U.S. government, it's a much more efficient operation, and, and I think that explains the, the kind of structure that that they have deployed in Iraq. Um, what, what troubles me from compared to the, to the Balkan situation is that there there was a great deal of, of need and interest in, in putting together both a multilateral framework but also uh, a strong interagency presence where you had AID, the military, and, and other civilian components working, working sort of collegially. Um, that that's not the the process that that you see now uh in in the the Iraqi situation it's very much a DOD led uh, uh uh operation and without the uh the benefit uh, i think the necessary benefit of of a multilateral framework at a minimum we're not going to be able to to do a lot of the things that need to be done such as policing on our own and that's where, certainly in the Balkans, the UN became became very important because it at least provided resources that we couldn't provide provide as well. Uh, so I think there's the the one lesson they learned from their experience in Afghanistan was it's much more efficient to do it the way we we did it there. Uh, I, I'm not sure that that's really a long-term lesson that that you're going to be able to uh, to carry over um, in in others other situations. Um, I think, though, one one positive lesson they came away from Afghanistan was recognizing, in the case of Iraq, you do have to be concerned about nation building. And Jay Garner, I mean, that, what he's doing and trying to put in place, I think, reflects reflects that lesson, which is uh, which is good to to carry with you into Iraq rather than having to learn it all over again.
3: Alex, well, before uh, it's a, a different point, but the point what you just mentioned while you were there before we get questions about elections and uh, the rule of law, perhaps I didn't make myself clear. What I was trying to say is that you cannot have elections right after the conflict. Uh, Let's suppose we had free and democratic election in Germany, Mm. Professor Large, in 1946 and allowed Hitler to run. How many votes in the parliament would he have gotten? I don't know. Uh, But what I see in Kosovo, we've been working with the presidents of the parties all three parties there since the conflict and before the conflict, those that existed. I see a very rapid and uh, good development on the part of the former KLA fighters. Both presidents, uh, Fachi and Haradinaj, who were former uh, leaders of the Kosovo Liberation Army, you wouldn't recognize what they're talking about. They're talking about multi-ethnicity now, and they mean it. Mm -hmm. They talk about uh, cooperating with the Serbs. Haradinaj now has his parliamentary caucus... Uh, one uh, Roma gypsy deputy and they were killing those people uh, right after the war and this is very important, they have learned something they learned that they have to behave differently it took them four years but it's different when we conduct uh, negotiation sessions between let's say Chovic, deputy prime minister who comes from Belgrade to Pristina uh, local Serbian leaders before you would get seen a scream match between the Albanians and the Serbs. Now, what you see is the former moderate, or somebody who calls himself moderate Rugova, sits back and doesn 't say anything, but the former combatants. They are engaged in the dialogue, and they are finding some sort of relationship with the Serbs. And on the local level, the municipalities that are functioning are the ones mostly run by the former guerrilla fighters, which is very, very interesting. So, I'm not, of course, elections recognize, well, to tell you what, what people think about, and it's a much bigger question than, for example, in Algeria and in Egypt, whom to recognize who wins the election, free election. But here, I would caution from holding elections right after the conflict, we should spend some time rebuilding the country and building the rule of law and then holding the elections.
0: I'd like to just follow up with a question. Uh, in How has the difference, and I would address to all four of you, how has the difference in the way the war was conducted, the Second World War versus the conflicts in ba- the Balkans and Afghanistan, affected the post-democratization the democratization process. I, I think there's clearly differences here that need to be drawn out, and I'd like to hear from all four of you on this. Go
1: ahead, oh, There's one interesting point here. I mean, when, when we uh, fought in, 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 this recent, in this recent Iraqi war, obviously the idea was to, in many ways, fight a limited war. We were going to spare as much of the civilian population as we could. We were going to uh, use precision bombing rather than carpet bombing and so forth and so on in order to, uh, not to do too much damage. Um and in a way there's a there's a similarity between that and what we're doing afterwards too. I think there's a, a sense we're we're going to be rather limited in, in what we do in Reconstruction as well. We didn't want to lose any people in the war, we wanted to limit casualties for ourselves as much as possible. We, and we seem not to want to uh, take much of a, of a risk in, in the post war reconstruction either. We're going to limit it in, in each case. And obviously in World War II, that was totally different. I mean, there was no effort to spare civilian lives. On the contrary, we deliberately used massive uh, uh, carpet bombing campaigns in order to kill as many as possible. And we, we selected some targets strictly for terror purposes. Dresden is, is a case in point. Um, so there wasn't uh, there wasn't any uh, limitations involved, nor were uh, there limitations imposed on the re- on the postwar reconstruction. We went in there with the idea we were going to re- you know, rebuild the whole damn thing uh, from the bottom from the bottom up, and and we were going to put a lot of resources into that. So it's a very different uh, set of circumstances.
2: Yeah, I'd mainly agree. I I don't think the variable that's so important is is how the war was waged because, I mean, as as David just said, the war was much more brutal in the case of uh, Japan and Germany than it was in the case of Iraq. I think what might be more important is uh, the neighborhood in which uh, each of these countries is located in, and uh, how the neighbors feel about the whole thing, uh, in the case of, uh, of Japan, clearly uh, the occupation of japan was was relatively harsh. The Japanese had to pay the costs. I think unlike Germany, they had to pay uh, a number of the costs they had to pay the entire costs of basing housing u s uh, forces and, and, and allied forces. One of the reasons that this this occupation can be harsh in a way that the occupation today can 't be harsh is uh, the U.S. didn't have to demonstrate to Japan's Asian neighbors that it was treating Japan well as a demonstration of that. Right. Right. In fact, right. Japan's Asian neighbors were delighted <laughs> yeah. that Japan was being harshly treated, whereas you right. know, we have almost a consumerist <laughs> approach to Iraq today. I mean, it's got to be treated very nicely, uh, as Wolfowitz says. Uh, right? that? Market-focused. Market-focused, right, exactly. I mean, if it's going to appeal to the rest of the yeah. Arab nations. There's, a, there's another difference, too, that I think operates in the German-Japan case's uh, Unlike this one, the Iraq case, and that is uh, that when uh, the Japanese surrendered to the Americans, uh, there was a tremendous feeling of relief that they'd they'd surrendered to the right people because they could have surrendered parts of their home islands uh, to the Russians. Uh, The Russians were moving into Manchuria, the (laughs) northern zone of Korea. Uh, There were some plans for the Russians to occupy Hokkaido, uh, the northern island in in Japan, Uh, and tremendous relief. Uh, that, that the Americans had, in a sense, almost saved them. And I think there were feelings of that sort of relief in, in, in the Western zones in Germany to some well, extent, too.
1: Absolutely. Germans uh, desperately trying to surrender right. to the Americans as opposed to the Russians, yeah. running as fast as they
2: could to the West. And in the Iraq situation, we're not, we're not the lesser of two evils. Uh-huh. I mean, there's no other force that, that can be out there as, as the other.
3: Alex? Well in Bosnia we didn't wage a war, we came after the war. In Kosovo we (laughs) waged a war, but it was a different kind of war. We were very selective in the way that we were bombing Uh, a TV station in Belgrade or bridges and things like that. And we were also working with the Serbian Democratic Opposition, and this is why the present government in Belgrade trusts the Americans and wants the Americans to be involved. And for Kosovo, we came also there to save these people from what was happening to them shortly before the bombing. And they also trust the Americans. Albanians will tell you today that they will never negotiate uh, without the Americans being in the room on any issue from the transportation to the final status of Kosovo. And if you will tell them, well, uh, this is the issue that the European Union supposed to deal with, let's say, uh, reconstruction of this, or that, no, 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 no. The Americans have to be there, otherwise not even coming.
4: I think one thing that's different about Afghanistan and Iraq is that the combat isn't over yet. Yeah. Despite pronouncements, and and what what we're finding in Afgan- Afghanistan and Iraq, again another similarity here is that you've got you've got assistance activities going on, not just humanitarian, but reconstruction going on at the same time that American forces are still in a in a in a combat mode, uh, and that creates a totally different psychology among the people you're you're trying to help. Uh, you know, one day you've got you know special forces people going to uh, you know a village in Afghanistan going after al qaeda the next day some guys in uniform are coming along to you know dig a well you know who, who's you know what does yeah. the local <clears throat> population perceive as the role of those forces Maybe there was, you know, guerrilla action against U.S. forces in Germany. Very, and, no, virtually none. Virtually but but not in Japan. I we are we are open to potentially uh, an extended period in both Iraq right. and Afghanistan, where not only mm-hmm. our our military forces, but those who are there, quote, to help you, unquote, right. mm-hmm. are going to be subject to targets of, of ongoing military action. Yeah. That's a very very key difference. I think, exactly. And
3: not in Bosnia and Kosovo, also. No,
4: that's right. That's right. Yeah.
6: Iran. And this issue of, of uh, Americans or Westerners talking about um, is, is Islam compatible with democracy? I right. think that's, that's a question that, you know, sitting in the halls of academia, is not, not only not relevant, it's not helpful, it's not productive. Precisely the point about Iran: that people within Iran are deciding this issue for themselves. Is what's important. Yeah. I mean, being a Christian, a Syrian Christian from Iran myself, who left in the 70s, I can tell you that that is far more important to me than, than thinking about some other regime coming in from the outside. I, I know personally that, that Shiites and Sunnis suffered under the Shah and Christians benefited. Uh, so so that, that's <clears throat> the first point. Second point I want to make, maybe self-involved. Sort of self serving way, it, it, or question is, what is the role of the Christians in this, in this region? These are countries that are uh, extremely heterogeneous within the Sunni and Shiite communities, but also the, the Azeri communities in the north, the Kurds, the Christians are split as well. There are means uh, in the north as well. Um, I think it's an important question to bring up, uh, notwithstanding the numbers, yes, 4%, but there are 2 million Assyrians living less, that left because of extenuating circumstances in Iraq and Iraq. And, and the Christians are important because I think uh, maybe you can elaborate on them because they stand on both sides of the equation. They're also, uh, they were a part of, they were a big part of these totalitarian regimes. Um, you think of, um, of the deputy the mm-hmm. all the way to, uh, to Palestine. You've got Arafat's wife is a prominent Christian So you've got, and you also have Christians across the board in pro-democracy movements in Iran, in Iraq, across the region. So what do you think the role of the Christian communities are in Islam and democracy?
4: Well, time for another commercial from USIP. Our our religion and peacemaking program under David Smock has worked extensively in the Balkans, uh, in Palestine, uh, Israel, but also we're, we're trying to see what we can do in in Iraq in in terms of creating the basis for not only interreligious dialogue but leadership on the part of the various religious communities working together to demonstrate to society how important a role religion can play in building peace in a a post-conflict society. That's a lot of generality, but in very practical terms, it means the religious leaders exerting... If you will, leadership within their communities to build toward peace, and, and I think whether it's you know Christian, Muslim, Jews, however however the mixture happens to be in any particular country, um, the, the religious leaders have to begin to take take back control of religion. Uh, the Balkans is a perfect example where the politicians hijack religion for disastrous results, and while I don't know. It, you know the, the the internal developments within Iraq itself i suspect a lot of the same thing has happened there and and i think the best thing that can be done is you know in, in essence uh, empowering the religious leaders to play that that role of a, a a unifying force within their their own societies they can do it um, that would be my my comment. Yep. Um, i think both
7: Left off uh, where this question, the last question started, and that is well, what is the, the attitude of Islamic leaders towards democracy? It's not whether the Islam is compatible with democracy, but they, uh, but Islam has its own view of democracy, and the religious leaders in Islam presumably are talking about what kind of government they want, right? Aside from what Donald Trump stuff says, so it's know, that tradition, that Islamic tradition, which probably would end up looking more like Iran than anything else in the arena, is probably what the religious slash political leaders, because Islam doesn't separate the two, you know, as we did in this country in our early political, you know, literature, like the Federalist Papers, you know, that doesn't exist in Islamic. Right? What are those leaders? What are the Islamic leaders? They are saying about what their government, what the Iraqi government
4: should look like.
6: Well,
4: I let me make just a very general point because I'm not uh, I'm not an expert in this. But my 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 sense from what I've heard is that there's a debate going about just what you know where does, where, do, where is the line uh, between you know politics and, and religion. I don't think there, there is a, a set view. Uh, I think Iran's a good example of that too, where you have you know extreme uh, forms of, of, of uh, political activism on the part of clerics and and those clerics who see that as, as simply wrong uh, because uh, the politics ends up corrupting the religion. Uh, so I, I don't think there's a there's a clear, uh, there's a clear view on that in, in any of the places that we're we're looking at, uh, particularly Afghanistan and Iraq.
1: So she is, you know, there really. Is, I mean, there's a difference between Iran and, and and Iraq here, there, and in Turkey. There are places in the Islamic world where there's a strict difference between a, a division made between the politics and and the clergy. It's it may, maybe not in Iran where there's a theology, but in Iraq there certainly was. I mean, the Baath Party was secular and. and That's what we got here. Well, I, I understand that, but there is a tradition. But there's a tradition of thinking about it. Uh, in, in, in some, it's still an Islamic country, it's, right? Uh, and uh, same, same with Turkey, where, where you have a, uh, an Islamic country that has developed a certain kind of democracy, uh, uh, albeit one that's different than our own and that's guaranteed by the military to a large degree and so forth and so on. But I think you have very different traditions within Islam with respect to the, the relationship between politics and the clergy.
0: The Shia put up, even before the war, a whole set of guidelines for what they saw as a government in Iran. And uh, it's one of a number of such documents that exist presently, uh, and they are being used in part as a basis for the discussion that will be coming up this month on constitutional issues. First, you, then, John. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I, I'd like to first compliment that uh, Just absolutely
6: first rate. Uh, let's get to a rather narrow
5: point, and I think it relates to Bosnia, Kosovo, and Afghanistan. Uh, and that is the Notion of multilateralism. Now, this morning's forum and a lot of other forums, uh, there's an outright rejection of the notion that somehow or other, this democratization uh, of Iraq cannot work uh, under a um, multilateral basis. That what you need is a single will, essentially, the United States. And from what I heard with respect to Bosnia and Kosovo is somewhat different, the more nuanced uh, response, and that is that um, uh, that multilateralism does not seem to have been a major impediment uh, when you isolate out all those other factors uh, and compare multilateralism (laughs) to unilateralism, that multilateralism has not been an impediment, and indeed it's been rather successful in Kosovo. And uh, did I misread you?
3: Well, it certainly helped. It would have been almost impossible, very difficult, to deal, for example, with the Serbs without the Russians in Kosovo or in Bosnia. Mm -hmm. It would have been very expensive to deal without the Germans and the French uh, reconstructing both places. And I don't think we would have had enough manpower to send experts Whatever they were, to run uh, plants, factories, and cities uh, in many of these places. It simply was important to have uh, multilateralism. But also remember that we came differently. We came after uh, the United Nations. Passed a certain decision, and that's why we had those people. Not because we wanted to have them. And if you will ask you know, the Albanians today, they will tell you that we don't. We, just, the Americans will be fine. We don't need the United Nations. I read you this letter from Daci. He would say, "Why should we need them? We need the Americans. They're up to the point when they come and talk to us and say, one, two, three, four has to be done. You do it, and that's it. And then we're on the way to independence. But it certainly helped." You, I just oh, add
4: can I just one point? Really? If we're going to be in this for the long haul, and that is more than 6 to 18 months, uh, we're very quickly going to run out of resources to do this unilaterally in Iraq, Um, whether you're just talking about the number of people that are physically present. And I think Rick Shinseki's little argument that he got into was based on Rick's experience as S-4 commander when I was there. He knows what it takes if you're going to carry out a political agenda with essentially an occupying force. How many troops you got to, you got to put in on the scene. Um, I'm not a fan of, of, you know, the U.N. uber alice uh, for, for these kinds of operations, but there really has to be some mixture here of, you know, U.S. leadership and, and
0: perhaps a predominance of resources, but we've got to have help. Now I should say that the U.S. has already uh, asked uh, some states for troops to take the place of U.S. forces, reduce U.S. forces down to, by two divisions within six months. Josh, the US, and then...
2: I'm
1: trying
0: to pull
8: out some kind of a general frame from from all of this experience uh, and let me just make a proposition and just ask um, uh, all of you or whoever of you to uh, let me know if it makes any sense or or, or none at all. But the general proposition would be that uh, a, uh, an occupation um, uh, works uh, in terms of making possible the development towards democratization or towards a decent society Um, In large part, not because it comes in with a fixed set of institutions that have to be replicated one uh, after another, but rather that it allows a space um, uh, through provision of security and rule of law for um, education. That is, uh, in essence, uh, the people of the occupied country have to learn how to become a constitutional, decent, democratic state, which means they have to both bring together their own traditions, their own history, whatever it is, their own culture, whatever it is, and something that they get from outside and create a distinctive mix. Uh, and once they have, in fact, got that distinctive mix more or less right, then it's time for the occupation simply to end. But that uh, anytime you go in with the assumption that you've got uh, a particular plan, a kind of a tutelage program, it's going to fail. This uh, conception, however, does bear with it the possibility that what people will learn is that they don't necessarily want to be exactly like the U.S. They may not even decide they want to be friendly with the U.S., but that the education of the it's kind of a self-education and a space for self-education is actually what um, occupation should be about.
1: I, th- I think one, you know you need a, a very difficult combination of many things. You need clarity on one thing right at the beginning, and that is that you provide security. That's your first, and, and that's an absolutistic thing. But at the same time, you need the ability to improvise uh, when it comes to adapting uh, native traditions or, or, or practices to your own set views. You need to be willing to make changes, and we did that in Germany. We did that in Japan, too, I think, but we were pretty uncompromising when it came to security. We didn't... You know, uh, of course, we didn't, we didn't uh, confront the same difficulties that we do now in Iraq. But uh, there, there was never any question that uh, there would be uh, local military forces allowed to function and question what we were doing. You know, that was absolute. But at the same time, we had this flexibility when it came to uh, working through local uh, agencies and organizations. And I think that combination is what we need ag- again. But it's, it's very difficult to find.
2: I think I might deal with your question a little differently, Josh, because I think it assumes that there's something that you can tell policymakers that will uh, generate a recipe for successful occupations. And I would say if you're going to broaden this out, we've talked about a few occupations today. The U.S. did a whole bunch of occupations in the Caribbean and sure. Central America. Uh, the Bush administration's not bringing them up because they were all dismal failures. Now, we've, we've heard today about some very well-intentioned occupations that we certainly didn't look for, unlike Iraq, which we looked for, um, in, in the case of, of, of Bosnia, Kosovo. And, you know, we're hearing that even with all the best intentions and the multilateralism, they're tough to do. The history of occupations is almost all of them fail. They don't work. And the only two that the administration and we can come up with are Japan and Germany. You know, maybe we could throw in Italy, but, I mean, that wasn't a real occupation. Yeah. But, okay, Japan and Germany, and we didn't actually have to go in and teach them that much. We simply had to reinforce the good guys, as it were, uh, which which took U.S. power. It's not an insignificant thing, but I don't think there's a whole lot you can tell People to in, in really hard cases like Iraq about how to make it right. And, and, and I mean, if I could just say one thing here, I, it has been on my mind, considering that almost everything that was predictable in Iraq that could go wrong has gone wrong. I mean, that it was going to be a very tough place to occupy. Why you start a war when you don't have a way of a successfully <laughs> occupying and reforming it is beyond me. So, anyway, that's my. <laughs>
3: Well, there were a couple of more successful places, the Grenada and a small country, right? <laughs> <laughs> Panama maybe. You know. right. <laughs> but uh, when we went to the Balkans we didn't have a plan. I, n- I never heard of one, neither to Kosovo nor to Bosnia. And I'm always, you know, I, I'm, I'm pessimistic not only about uh, recipes. I'm also pessimistic about certain parts of... Uh, uh, Academic, academic scholarship, for example, conflict resolution, because I don't think you can exactly prescribe you go after a war and you do one, two, three, four, five. And you cannot say that these are the institutions that work. In Yugoslavia, after Tito died, every year they were electing a new president. And uh, the presidents was coming from every republic and the two autonomous provinces. It happens once that Europe had two Albanian presidents, Albania and Yugoslavia. Well, Albanians did not want to stay in that country, but they certainly had institutions. Uh, One of uh, Tito's parliaments had four chambers. Do you know any parliament in the world with four (laughs) houses? But, uh, and now in Kosovo, we have institutions that create specific protection for minorities. For example, with the parliament, there are mandatory 10 seats specifically set aside for the Serbs and 10 for other minorities. Well, Serbs still do not want to live in Kosovo. And exactly what you said, you have to create security. But only security in terms of rule of law. If you want to go further, security for them to talk to each other. Security to be protected while they are talking about certain things. And security to trust... Especially religion. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, especially religion. And security to trust the other side when they promise something to you. And so far we haven't succeeded in the Balkans in that security. You have two uh, entities in Bosnia, and I don't see when they're going to... Start loving each other,
4: yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I would just come back to this one point, which I think is a common thread, certainly through all of our recent experience that if we if we don't uh, and you, you can never sequence this thing perfectly so that you you know do all of one thing, get that job done, then are able to move on. But I think if there's one thing you've got to attack early on and we stumble on this each time, it's the whole question of policing, judicial yeah. reform, attacking the criminal elements, because until you do that. You're going to end up with this unholy alliance between the criminals and the nationalist politicians that are going to undercut anything else you try to do, and we're not good at that as a as a state. We don't as Americans we don't really think in those terms about political systems. I mean, we we accept corruption, I guess, in our in our cities and and maybe national level sometimes, but we don't think of how. How pernicious this, this relationship is and it's damaging. A That's a question. And if you're,
3: and I'm sorry, and if you're lucky, politicians control the criminals, but if you're not lucky, criminals control politicians. Exactly. Yeah.
4: That's what happens. Yeah. Last question. Yeah. <coughs> I'm a lawyer,
8: and I'm very confused as to all these sort of vague references to the rule of the law. Uh, I'm not sure what it means, how you develop it, how you know it when you've got it. Take the example of Colombia, who's going to protect all these judges from being killed uh, for their rulings by whatever party, whatever person they rule against, or the military that's supposed to protect them. I have absolutely no idea what you mean by the rule of law and how gonna get it.
4: And I don't know either. But I know what it is when you don't have it.
2: Yeah, you know when you don't have
4: it. I know what it is in Bosnia when, if you're lucky, you've trained the police to the point that they can actually arrest someone. I'm not finished yet either. And that person is not capable of being brought to trial because you have no independent judiciary that isn't so cowed by the fact that this guy has political connections and guns behind him that they don't show up. That there's no prison system worth its name to put people in puny, and, and punish them so that society as a whole sees that you don't, you don't get away with criminal activity. And if there's no sense among the population as a whole that, that the justice system applies equally to all of them. Now, what is ruleable? I don't know, but I know that kind of system isn't. And that's the kind of system you confront. And that's what, what results, I think, in this unholy alliance between criminals and politicians in, in so many of these cases.
3: And in Kosovo, a question was uh, absence of law. Which law do you follow when you come in? Do you follow the law of the province, autonomous province of Kosovo, which is no more, or the law of the Republic of Serbia, which Kosovo was a part of, or the federal law of the Socialist Federative Republic of Yugoslavia, which Serbia was part of, or do you follow just uh, some vague charters of the United Nations? Or so do you follow? Islamic law? Well, there is no Islamic law in Yugoslavia. Really, religion did not play that that that's a significant role, especially in Kosovo. It's much more, more important to be post-communist rather than rather than religion. But uh, there was no law to keep.
4: It, that just reminds me of a very interesting story from Afghanistan. Taliban literally destroyed the legal code of Afghanistan. I mean, literally, they 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 burned the books, so that so that when, when the Karzai government came in, there was no copy of the Afghan legal code. Uh, uh, Institute of Peace, uh, ABA, and some other people went around the world going to libraries and were able to, to to reconstitute the Afghan legal code and finally hand-carried it last May to Kabul and presented the government of Afghanistan with its law. <laughs>
0: Well with that uh, hand carrying the process, uh I want to thank the panelists again for what I think were for four very stimulating presentations. Thank you very, very much. We'll now take a take uh ten minute break and we gather
6: at three thirty for structure, architecture, infrastructure and democracy.